This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. With summer coming up, I'm already dreading not only the traffic on the roads, but also the increased cost of groceries and the fact that my children eat all day long. You know, we all have stressors. Some are big and some are small, like an increased grocery bill. But therapy is a safe place to actually get these stressors off your chest and to figure out how you can actually work through them. There are many benefits to therapy for people from all walks of life. It's helpful to learn positive coping skills so you don't freak out about that grocery bill and how to set boundaries. Therapy can empower you to be the best version of yourself, and it isn't just for those who've experienced major trauma. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's convenient, flexible, and entirely online. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash Moore today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P.com slash Russell Moore. Russell Moore, and you're listening to The Russell Moore Show, brought to you by Christianity Today. Every week, we explore here conversations and questions from a Christian perspective to help you sort out how to live as a follower of Jesus in confusing times. This week, we have a conversation to seek to do just that. No one can ever accuse Michael Ware of not having a good sense of timing. He releases a book on the spirit of politics, politics as an aspect of discipleship at the most spiritually depleted, politically exhausted time of our lifetimes. And so one might say that this is an effort at antidote. And we will talk about that, especially for those of you who are, and I know a lot of you are because I hear from you are really exhausted with the whole thing. We're going to talk about this today in a little bit of a different way that might might surprise you and help you. Michael Ware is the founder and CEO of the Center for Christianity and Public Life. He was in the White House, in the Obama White House, the faith-based office there, but also on the presidential campaign. His writing has been featured in The Atlantic, New York Times, Washington Post, and Christianity Today. And we're grateful for that. But he has a brand new book out called The Spirit of Our Politics, Spiritual Formation and the Renovation of Public Life. Michael, thanks for being here. So good to be with you. Um, A few people I'd rather have this conversation with than you. Well, I was thinking this morning about the first time I ever met you, which I (laughs) think was at the White House. And that was almost 15 years ago which is it, astounding to me. It is astounding. I mean, I was I was just looking there's a there's a photo you sent me of the two of us at a at a ceremony for 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 you that you had you had taken a new position and there of us and and you know, I was just reflecting on, you know, all that's transpired since and <laughs> mostly just 
aging. It's been <laughs> yeah, a lot that's transpired. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> now, Michael, I think a lot of people we talk about, we're going to talk about the nitty gritty of your book in just a minute. But before we do, are we really going to do this again? Mm. After all of the broken relationships, all of the arguments, all of all of it, are we really doing Trump v. Biden one more time? At a very practical and literal sense, yes. <laughs> yes, we are doing it again. And mm-hmm. we need to be asking, well, is there is there any way that no matter what the outcome of the election is, no matter what happens in the strictly political realm, how might this not just be sort of a a net neutral, but what imagination do we have for how we might emerge stronger as a people, as a church on the other side? And what is a positive vision? Uh, Though I, I certainly share in the the exhaustion and the knowledge that, gosh, there are going to be headwinds coming against us and, and the, what, what we're trying to build in our lives and our churches, given how pervasive this toxic political culture is. Yeah. And part of the problem with getting to the other side is that we have kept thinking we were right around the corner from yes. the other side for a long time now. What what would you say, Michael, to the person that I was addressing at the first who says, I'm just so exhausted by all of this, all of it, all the drama, all the division, all the broken relationships, all the violence, we've seen violence, yes. all of that. I'm just so over it. I don't even want to engage with politics at all anymore. Yeah. Well, one thing I'd say is that there are ways of engaging politics, paying attention to politics, which this person and we all would probably be better off letting go of. So in in the book, I talk about this idea from a political science professor at Tufts called political hobbyism, which basically is referring to, I I just refer to this as uh, taking an entertainment consumeristic approach to politics without actually ever participating in politics and political activity at all. But I think we scroll through our feeds we tweet antagonizing things to people who disagree with us and we go well i did my i did my politics for the day the problem is not that we take politics too seriously but that we take politics seriously in all of the wrong ways mm-hmm. so so that would be the first thing if if i'm talking to someone who's saying you know i can't watch cable news for 3 hours a night anymore i'd say good you good. shouldn't be doing that yeah. you know what i would say though is that if this season has shown us anything. It's that our political culture does not stay out there. Mm. I think there was a very well-meaning idea among pastors, among others, that, you know, the church is not for politics. We keep politics outside of our small groups, our our churches, and that's, that's secular stuff. Well, for good or for ill, and recently it's been a lot for ill, Politics find, finds its way in. It turns out that we are actually social beings. We are actually political beings, and we have political responsibilities, whether we choose to acknowledge it or or not. And so, uh, what I what I tell folks is instead, we need to rightly situate, and and this is what I try to do in the book: rightly situate politics, not as above or separate from our life with Jesus, but 
under our life with Jesus, as a part of an interactive relationship with Jesus, as something that is within the range of our effective will. And if we rightly situate our politics, we'll be much better prepared to deal with reality, first of all. And then, and then secondly, I think we'll be able to have a much healthier approach personally and as we're interacting throughout this presidential election season and beyond. Don't you think, though, that there is a lot of wisdom in what many people mean when they say we're keeping politics out of the small group, which is not to say that we're not political beings or social beings. Yeah. We're we're sexual beings, but not during small group time. I think there are people who would say, you know, we don't we don't we want this to be a space where people actually can let go for a little while of having their identities bound up in this <laughs> and connecting with people as a fellow Christian, as a human being, without bringing all the all the tension of this. Don't you think there's some wisdom to that? I think I think there's wisdom to that. I think we would we would have concerns if following the small group there was a planned outing to the strip club. Mm-hmm. Or following following the small group, the folks in the group that uh, operated businesses had a meeting about how they could fudge their numbers on their accounting slips. And so I, I think it's... But the small group's not about accounting. Uh, correct. And, and, and correct. if you had a small group where they're talking about accounting practices, that would be not what the church is for, right? Well, I I think that's right, except to the when Paul tells us to get rid of malice mm-hmm. that is not it that is not for everything except for politics right it's inclusive right. of politics and so so th- that's what I mean so I don't think small groups necessarily I think there's some wisdom to not saying well it's a presidential election cycle let's have our small group who are y'all meet on for? meet on the <laughs> yeah who are you voting for but I do think that we can have confidence. So so here, here is one of the issues. Unless we respect and take what we do in our small groups and what we hear on Sunday morning to have implications for and to, to, to hold up in politics, then, then we often think that, okay, if we think of Christianity in relation to politics at all, then it gets categorized as, well, this is uh, what it means to be a Christian in politics is, well, that's biblical worldview. Mm-hmm. Or that's uh, th- that means that you belong to the right advocacy group. Mm-hmm. And, and and what I what I want to say is, uh, no, no, actually, this is not to make our churches political any more sort of political than than they would be financial resource, you mm-hmm. know, train. but it is to say that, how you handle your finances, your relationship, your politics, how you deal with people both in public and in private. Yes, Christian resources have something to offer to all of that. And it's part of our lives, uh, whether we uh, welcome it or or not, it's it's going to be there. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Often one can find someone, you would say, this person I admire and is spiritually formed this other person I admire is spiritually well-formed, and they are completely in different places. How does that happen? Yeah. Well, 
first, and I, I know people are uh, often going to think in in one very particular context, and I think this is this is true in that context as well. But let me just speak generally. I think that there can be equally faithful Christians that have different politics, and and I think one of the great sort of one of the things that should be something that provokes political imagination and something that's beautiful about the witness of the church is something that because of political interests and because of the ways that people want to use Christianity to drive political behavior is something that actually gets muted or reversed entirely, which is to suggest if you are a real Christian, you will vote this way. If you are a real Christian, you will support HR 171. And I just want to say there are rare, rare instances, so rare that I think, I sometimes think it's not even productive to to discuss them. Rare instances in which the political decisions can be elevated to that level of sort of dogma, to that level of a binary, you're either faithful or not, depending on what your, what your stance is, how you vote, whether you support this bill, we actually need to, that's actually not the greatest contribution that Christianity has to offer our politics, but that's how we've operated. We've, mm-hmm. we've, we've operated as if the greatest and only Christian contribution to our politics is to tell our politics what it is, what it should do. And I do think there's room for that space for that. I think in this environment, one of the greatest gifts Christians and Christianity has to offer our politics is in telling our politics what it is not, Mm-hmm. What authority it does not have, yeah. what dominion it does not have over our characters and over the, 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 the character of our communities. What I loved most of all about Israel and why I became a Zionist was because Zionism was a rejection of victimhood. A few weeks ago on CT's The Bulletin, we launched Promised Land, a new podcast about Israel and Palestine in a post-October 7th world. 6.30 a.m., we're, we're in, in, in our synagogue praying, and sirens go off, and they're, and they're going on. Based on interviews and conversations captured on the ground in Israel last November, it's an exploration of the spiritual, political, and historical roots of the conflict. When there's a weak Israel, every Jew in the world is weak. And why should uh, a Russian Jew who has nothing to do with this land come come here? Why? I mean, if you want, you can give them Texas. You love them so much. I am alive because I wasn't, I I didn't come home. But all my friends that were here were murdered, here, here, over there. This week, Promised Land moves to its own feed. You'll find links in the show notes. So if you haven't heard it yet, you can go catch up and catch the new episodes as they come all in one place. You mentioned the phrase political therapeutic deism. Tweaking uh, Christian Smith there, I laughed when I saw that the first time. What what do you mean by that? Yeah, so I, I think there was a church planning and sort of church movement rose in the 90s at the seeker-sensitive movement. Mm -hmm. And I think what we are seeing, what we are in the midst of, is a politics-sensitive 
church movement, where you have churches and Christian communities making decisions on the basis of political considerations, how it will affect the political uh, affinities and allegiances of those on the inside and, and those on the outside in, in ways that drastically reorient the church in, uh, in unhelpful ways. Political therapeutic deism refers to this use of God as principally a sort of supplemental justification to affirm one's own sense of political rightness. So the mm -hmm. kinds of beliefs associated with political therapeutic deism are things like, I am certain that God would support my political party. Things like, you can be certain about which issues in our politics God is most concerned about. And these kinds of ways of leveraging it, it can be Christian. Sometimes it's it's not even attached to any particular scripture or any particular distinct Christian resource. It's God language leveraged for the purposes of supporting one's political views, and and it's something that that uh, that, that I thought was helpful to to name and identify. I was talking the other day to a new friend who has moved to the United States from Denmark and was talking about trying to learn to be here in Williamson County, Tennessee, where I live. Mm. And he said one of the things that struck him was going into people's homes and seeing scripture verses on the wall. Yeah. He said, you have to understand, Denmark is so secular that if we saw that in Denmark, we really would think about calling a psychiatrist for a, a huh. care check. And now I see that all over the place. I wonder, what do you think is uniquely American about some of our temptations that we have with, with the spirit of politics? Oh, it's a, it's a great question. I mean, I mean, one of the issues with the one that difficulties with the question is I'm not sure that anything that might have been uniquely American stays uniquely American. Mm, so mm -hmm. I know you have a range of relationships, you know, around the world. And and I've had the experience of spending a, a good amount of time in the UK, for instance. Mm -hmm. I will say the pervasiveness of in some in some quarters a definitionally a Christian equating to a particular political affiliation is uh, is profoundly unique in my experience. Yeah. There may be other nations in which, but like even nations that have a Christian social Democrat party or, mm -hmm. a, you know, a Christian democratic union, even there, it doesn't seem to have this, this idea that, oh, this is the party where all the Christians belong. No, it's a, it's a political identifier. The parties are vehicles for political perspectives and they mediate political differences. They aren't these brands, which are sort of like, markers like like you know nike only if nike sort of owned the deepest parts of yourself you, you know <laughs> yeah. th that is a pretty that is a pretty american thing i don't think it's that unrelated to the fact that in america we spend compared to other democratic nations more time more money have more institutional sort of development built around politics. So there are all of these 
affirming structures, which it is for their interest for politics to claim more and more of your identity, including your religious identity. And, and we need to, again, identify that and understand what's happening when that, when that happens. When you talk about spiritual formation, I think there are a lot of people who know that they ought to be pursuing spiritual formation and they kind of feel like it's kind of like when you've you've been talking to somebody and you've forgotten their name, but there comes a point where you've forgotten it for so long that mm -hmm. you can't ask what is your name. So you have to find some other way to do it. They're, they're like, I've been Christian for a long time. I know I'm supposed to be pursuing these spiritual disciplines, but I don't actually know how to do it. Yeah. What What would you say to that person? Yeah. So the the model of spiritual formation that I advance, and, and I don't think we've talked about this yet, this book is very explicitly an application of Dallas Willard's ideas to public life. His name doesn't just come up once or twice. It's very, <laughs> and, and the book advances Dallas's model for spiritual formation, VIM. So vision, intention, means. And so I, I, I unpack that. What I would say is, I think it's important to clear away some of the clutter around spiritual formation, what its aims are. I, I think oftentimes people think of spiritual formation as this set of tasks that one can burden oneself with if they want to be super spiritual, <laughs> um, you know, if they want to be one of those people. What what I'd say is that everyone has a spiritual formation. The spiritual formation simply refers to the process by which your character is formed. And Christian spiritual formation is entirely centered and oriented towards the person of Jesus Christ and what it means to, to participate in spiritual formation is to take up activities that, that direct your life towards becoming like Jesus. And there are some well-established spiritual disciplines that are the means by which some of the means by which you can pursue spiritual formation. So things like prayer, celebration, worship, the study of scripture, silence, solitude. But there are also that sort of tried and true activities. But really, this is about thinking about your life and where there are stumbling blocks, what aspects of your life, your disposition, do not reflect life in Christ, do not reflect the fruit of the Spirit. And asking Jesus and, and experimenting with Jesus how you might become a person who is less prone to anger, who has greater self-control. And so, so we take it up in community. We take it up in discernment with the Holy Spirit. There are practices that can help us. But it's just really important that this is not about elevating to a higher plane of entering a special class of being a Christian. No, discipleship is about learning from Jesus how to live your life as though uh, Jesus was living your life. And there are practices we could take up that can help to shape us and that the Holy Spirit can use to shape us to live into that more deeply. What about the person who would say, okay, I want to start there, but I'm actually not sure. I don't know mm. myself well enough to know mm. whether what I'm experiencing is 
anger in a sinful mm. way or just sense of righteous indignation at the things that are going on in my house yes. or around my I don't know that. And I don't know, even with what we are, are talking about here, I don't know whether or not politics has malformed my character mm. or if I'm just really passionate about the ideas that I believe are so important. How does a person go about starting to figure that out? Oh, it's it, that's such a good question. I mean, first, s- Scripture tells us that we can that we can ask the, lo- the Lord to examine the contents of our heart, and, and 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 we can take these questions to the Lord in prayer. I think that we could be watchful and mindful as we go about our lives. I think we could invite counsel from from people we trust who can speak into our lives with authority about what they what they see in us. I I've I've done that in in my in my own life and it's it can be helpful to get outside outside perspective to put a finger on things that maybe you sort of sense but can't sort of sort of name because it's because it's you that no yeah. you know you 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 only experience your life as you experience mm-hmm. you, you know your your life and so I do think that there's there's prayer discernment there there's there's actually asking the question of of yourself and then there's asking these questions in community uh, but what we actually need to in, not separate out the kind of person we are from sort of what we do in the political realm to get what we think is right or what we think we need. Yeah. I think asking that question is such a good starting point for for everything mm. that you're talking about here. Even uh, just saying to God as simple as that, would you show me where yes. I need to be formed? With Dallas Willard, one of the most striking things that he has ever written, I think, is he was talking about prayer as what you're doing is inviting Jesus to sit right in front of you. Yeah. And that imagery just stays with me because I think we forget that when prayer or Bible reading or some other spiritual discipline becomes what you say, a kind of a thing we have to do. We miss that. Right. I I completely agree. I was in a, I was in a, a meeting and I don't even know the comment that sparked the thought in my mind. But it was such like a, it was such a jarring thought that pulled on something deep and like the the recesses of my mind that brought to mind, I didn't know what it was from, didn't know what it referred to, but I recalled reading someone saying, Christians never meet one-on-one. And I I left Mm. this meeting and just wrecked my brain and realized that it had come out of divine conspiracy, Willard's divine conspiracy, but he's writing about Bonhoeffer. Bonhoeffer Mm. in Life Together has this exceptionally beautiful passage that I write about in the book and that I think just this idea would do so much to transform Christian public presence. You know, Bonhoeffer has this idea that, you know, Christians never meet one-on-one. Jesus is always in between them, always mediating between them. And he says that when you're interacting with another Christian, you're never seeking to act on that person directly. You are looking to Jesus and asking what Jesus is seeking to do 
with that person and how you might participate. That idea of mediation, that idea of the the relief of knowing it's not my job to, in an exchange, maneuver and coerce things to either get what I want or even to sort of get someone else to, to act the way I want them to act. But, but no, I am cooperating with Jesus in this relationship. It, 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 it allows us, I think, to shift from entering politics out of a mindset of imposition, out of a defensive or embattled posture, to actually view politics as an area of life in which we can enter in a spirit of loving service that we have something to offer. That 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 embattled that you're talking about is yes. really important uh, yes. here because so many times what happens is we think there this is such an emergency in front of me right now. Yes. that I don't have time to think about those things and I wanted to, uh, to ask you one of the reasons sometimes that people get into that mode is what you were talking about at the beginning. They are watching cable news or they're doom scrolling or they're they're doing those sorts of things. And often I will have Christians who actually recognize that, but they say, I don't know where to go to find the news that I actually should be looking at. What sort of counsel do you have there? Yeah. When it comes to news consumption, I have a few, a few sort of lines of advice. And I, I specifically address this in the book. Uh, one is um, to read locally. I, I, I think that there is a, to, to, to the best extent possible, and of course there's a whole transformation with local news gathering happening now, but read close to you. Uh, read about Not the next what is story. happening in the, in the actual life, yeah, in the actual life of the community in which you're living. So much of the news we're consuming is about things that And no, I'm not saying, you know, ignore everything that's happening in the world, that kind of thing. But so much of the news we're consuming is about uh, the worst things that are happening everywhere in the world with a sense of immediacy. And of course, you're going to get embattled if you're just drinking in these streams of, of, of negativity and threats. You may not change your position on an issue, but if you can read with an eye towards understanding why people are behaving the way they're behaving, what their own self-narration is for mm -hmm. why they are supporting a particular candidate or, or policy position, you may have your opinion changed. At the very least, you'll have a sense that Oh, this is not as straightforward. This is not as good and evil. This is not as stark as oftentimes. There are some exceptions. This is not as stark as my political side or my sort of the, 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 the singular source I've been drinking from has been trying to tell me. And that can help loosen up some of the sense of embattlement, some of the sense of We are we are fighting evil incarnate in politics. That is that is pretty rarely the case, and oftentimes we need to. It, it's it's not located exactly where our politics suggests it is.
One of the actually embattled uh, groups of people are pastors. And um, I, I mentioned yeah. here that I was talking one day yes. to both a conservative evangelical pastor who said the same thing as a very progressive Episcopal priest said to me yeah. the same day. The way she worded it was, it's not just that I have this pressure in my congregation to take positions on all yes. of these various issues. If I don't make the specific issue central, yes, that also becomes a a battle. And they were just worn down and exhausted by that. And one of the places where this has shown up a lot recently is in the area of race. Yes. How would you advise a leader, whether a pastor or a small group leader or somebody else, to know the difference between cowardice and prudence? How do you know when you're telling yourself, okay, we're, we're, we're incrementally moving in the right direction and when that is just self-narration because you're scared? I think that we need to have discernment about the kinds of demands congregants are placing on pastors. One of the most uh, difficult things for, for pastors to, I think, think about, so I hear this all the time as well, right? Pastors will get emails in their inboxes, social media posts. If, if, if your pastor does not address this issue, empty the pews, leave, leave that church. Nine times out of 10, when the pastor is being asked to speak to a short-term, immediate political issue, the, the congregant asking them to speak to that issue is, is not asking with an eagerness to hear what the pastor reflects on and offers from his, his or her place of authority in discernment with the scriptures so that the person asking the pastor to speak can say, well, now I'll, I'll follow you. No, more often than not, <laughs> what the person asking the pastor to speak to this issue for, they're looking for the pastor to use their authority to settle a disagreement that is happening <laughs> within the church. Willard had a very high esteem for the office of the pastor. He called them spokespeople for Christ. And he, he said, you know, the, the pastor's role is one of bringing knowledge, not uh, trying to coerce behavior, not sort of ticky tacky. No, the, the pastor brings knowledge. And, and it is actually when pastors, I think, um, feel empowered, when pastors take on the high calling of their office, they can relieve themselves at least of the confusion around what their duty to their congregation is. But that that will that will take rejecting some of the some of the claims from our congregants. And I hope I hope folks who are in churches will read this chapter in my book. The local church is not just a another forum for your advocacy. The local church is not just the, the the convenient place in which, because you don't feel like you could affect politicians' decisions, well, I could make it really, I, I, I could really affect the the life of my my church. That that is not the right way to be approaching uh, the local church in 
again, but sometimes all but the it most is, extraordinary right? circumstances. Well, I mean, think think about such you're you're in a community where there has been a, a shooting of an unarmed uh, black male. We've seen this many times. That. Uh, seems to be racially motivated in some cases is clearly racially motivated. The pastor really has to speak to that. But sometimes there are people who can convince themselves, well, my people aren't ready for me to speak to that. So I'm just going to, to wait. How, how does somebody know that that's the right thing to do with those extraordinary yeah. circumstances. What are the times when you know, yeah. okay, I do need to speak to this? Yeah. So an attentiveness to the to the life of your congregation. I'll, I'll give you. I'll give you a great example. My church has a immigration legal aid ministry, and uh, some time ago, this wasn't this wasn't very recently. Some time ago there was a major decision made related to immigration at the federal level. My pastor on the following Sunday spoke to that decision. But what I knew and what I think everyone in the congregation knew was that he wasn't speaking to that issue because he saw it on Meet the Press that morning. Mm-hmm. He wasn't speaking to that issue because it was uh, it was, uh, it was uh, a hot topic that he, he thought he could you know, pontificate on for, because he had the floor. No, he was speaking to the issue because he knew that we had lawyers in our congregation that after they had done their day jobs, were volunteering into the, into the past midnight throughout that week, trying to, trying to serve folks. He knew that we had families in our congregation that whose lives were going to be affected and were were put in question because of the decision that had been made. And so that's that's one metric. What what does this have to do with the life of the the church and the the immediate surrounding community? And of course and just before I say this point I should say I I think right there are denominational histories there are expectations from within the congregation. I think there are some things if the congregation if if I heard you give a, a response to a pastor you had experience with who just took on the job, took down the American flag from the stage and then said, yeah. you know, they, they didn't like that. So, you know, it's a, uh, so much. And it was like, well, well, there there were there were expectations and that that community had a life before you before you came. And, and maybe there were some other pieces that that uh, to your approach there other than immediately taking down the American flag. So I think that there has to be a respect for history, for tradition. But I would say there's a difference between speaking to an issue, speaking to a societal circumstance, and putting the stamp of dogma on your prudential solution for that issue. So it's one thing in the wake of a shooting, whether it's a, a mass shooting or, or whether it's police violence, it, it, it's, it's one thing to con- condemn that, that injustice. It, it's, a, it's another thing to say, look, I've seen enough. If you're a real Christian, you're, you'll support HR 171 that will address gun violence, will address you know whatever the issue is, and if if you don't support this bill, you must not really care. That that is the kind of thing mm-hmm. that pastors mm-hmm. should be really really careful about, given their position of authority. And then I'd say all Christians ought to be really careful about mistaking their uh, their interpretation of 
principles like the dignity of the human being or God's opposition to racism and expressing with your prudential policy solutions to advance those ultimate values, like the same level of confidence that you would affirming the ultimate principle. You must have had people who, I mean, you're a guy from Buffalo in an evangelical Christian context. When, when I first met you, you were working for Barack Obama. Yeah. There had to be people in your life who said, Michael, you're not, you're, you're, maybe, maybe they wouldn't say you're not really a Christian, <laughs> but you're not really following Christ here because, and they might have some really legitimate sorts of concerns with religious liberty policy and abortion policy and those sorts of things. How did you navigate through that in terms of, first of all, yourself, but yeah. also in relating to people who couldn't understand why you were doing what you were doing? I, I think first with a lot of grace, particularly for, for those who weren't involved in politics. You know, sometimes I would go back home to my church and I remember an exchange with the woman who ran the, the church bookstore and she sort of suggested in a conversation that she, she'd never have a book by a certain politician even though they had books from, you know, a range of Republican politicians uh, in the bookstore. And I just sort of, it's just sort of that, thought, thought that was, that was interesting. And, and what did, what, what was she trying to communicate to, to, to me? But she was not politically active. She'd been given, well, she, she, she was relaying the story that she'd been given about, well, if you're a real Christian, you'll vote this way and these will be the most important issues. And, and, and so I, a lot of grace for that. I think uh, I, I would get a, a little, a little more frustrated with people that I knew personally, whose lives and actual sort of political affections actually did not seem to have integrity with the ways in which they'd leverage certain issues and sort of arguments in public that 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 would be a that would be a real you know that that could be difficult to to endure here's 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 the thing we can't ask everybody else to hold their political views loosely and and then sort of take overly personally political attacks against our, ourselves. I, I mean, I, I try to allow some of those kinds of questions to inform me and allow me to ask questions about, am I doing the right thing in this mm -hmm. particular scenario? Uh, where do my allegiances lie? And mm -hmm. those were questions that, whether they were, they were intended to be helpful or not, those are ways that helped me in my walk uh, with, with Jesus. Uh, you've heard me say this before, but even when I was in the White House, even when I was working on a presidential campaign, it was, as as our friend Jamie Smith would say, tinged with ambivalence. The, the, the difficulty is not feeling politically homeless when you're frustrated with all the options available. It's blatantly clear to you that none of the options are Christian. Uh, no, the important time to to consider yourself politically homeless is when you're actually, you know, uh, 
you know who you're going to vote for, <laughs> you, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. where, 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 where you actually feel like there is a, a better option. That, that is the point at which you're at m- most in danger of deluding yourself that what you consider to be the better option is actually without fault, that you could be completely comfortable and at home there. And, and that's why just thinking about a Christian approach to politics with a perspective that begins seven, eight years ago is not going to lead us in a fruitful direction in the long term. This whole book is about being renovated, heart renovated mm-hmm. by Christ, formed spiritually by yeah. Christ. All that presupposes that he's alive and yeah. that these yeah. stories are true and yes. the women weren't lying. Yes. How do you know that's the case? Hmm. When I was, when I was fifteen, um, my my sister had given her life to to Jesus a few years earlier, and she was always pestering me around the house, and that I I just kind of thought, you know, how silly this all is. But she had showed me some. She had tried to walk me down Romans Road, and I had I had musical taste that brought me into allowed me to cross paths with testimonies, and 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 so when my sister dragged me to her high school youth group, a pastor's guy by the name in Buffalo is a guy by the name of Jerry Gillis, and they ran a youth group there, and I hated the youth group. I didn't fit in. I didn't get the language, but on the way out of the youth group was volunteer by the name of Joe Vacani, who was handing out tracts of Romans. And I took that tract home and there was no commentary, no nothing. It was just Paul's letter. And I read it and I read it again. And on the third time I took out a, a green spiral notebook, I thought I'm gonna write down the things I think are interesting. I looked back on that notebook and I basically transcribed Paul's letter, almost, mm. almost in entirety. And all of it is there. Like mm-hmm. all of it is there from creation, creation groans in anticipation to, to, to consummation, to, 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 to the life that lays out ahead of us. And uh, my conviction, my, my experience in my life was I could have rejected what the Lord showed me there, but I could no longer say that there was no there there. You can't mm. read Romans and say there is no there is no mm-hmm. there there. Religion's a crutch. This is the no no. Uh, once you read Romans, you have to stare Jesus in the face and and say what you say what you think. Mm. You, you, you need to you, you're you're confronted with 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 a a, a question. And from that point in my life, this idea that we live in a God-breathed world, that this isn't just a set of arguments, this isn't just a set of theological principles that we provide mental assent to or not, but that God is alive, that Jesus offers a kingdom that we could step into now, has made everything else more real more worthwhile 
than than I could have ever hoped or or anticipated. I'm I'm deeply moved. Not that my life has been completely captured by it uh, yet. Not that my heart has been completely uh, captured by it yet. But Matthew 13 and the man who comes upon the field and finds a treasure and buys the whole field. That seems my best days. I go, that's that's exactly the right decision. Like, like how do I buy the field today? And, and and that's what I want to orient my life toward. And so, so, yeah. How to buy the field today? That is a good word. I think uh, Michael and I both would say if you if you have to choose to read one book this week, Book of Romans would take priority. But <laughs> if if you have also have time to read anything else, I would heartily commend to you this really thoughtful book, The Spirit of Our Politics, Spiritual Formation, and the Renovation of Public Life, especially if you're the kind of person who says, I just don't know if I can live through another year of this. Yeah. Michael Ware, thanks so much for being with us today. Thank you, my friend. Thank you. If you enjoy The Russell Moore Show, take a second to share this episode with a friend or leave a rating and review wherever you get your podcasts. The Russell Moore Show is a production of Christianity Today. Executive producers are Eric Petrick, Russell Moore, and Mike Cosper. Host is Russell Moore. Produced by Ashley Hales. Associate producers are Abby Perry and Mackenzie Hill. Director of Operations for CT Media is Matt Stevens. Audio engineering provided by Dan Phelps. Video producer is Abby Egan. And the theme song for The Russell Moore Show is Dusty Delta Day by Lennon Hutton. Every day, CT testifies to the reality that Jesus is alive, transforming his world and bringing his kingdom to bear. Jesus transforms, CT equips. Make a gift to our nonprofit ministry with a gift of $20 to provide 150 more people with redemptive storytelling, global perspective, and thoughtful podcasts. Give now at morect.com equip.